0: You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to scripture and relevant to life. Before we dive into the sermon, before we pray... Man, I am grateful for our worship team, for Kelly and for Courtney and Daisy when she's up here, and for Jess, and I just want to uh, say how grateful I am for them, and I hope you are too, and and when you get a chance, uh, just tell them how thankful you are that they lead us week in and week out, Um, and uh, I don't know, Jess got in at 2 a.m. this morning from Myrtle Beach, and she's here to sing and to lead with us, so wherever you're at, I, I don't see you, thank you for being here. Uh, what a blessing it is to have these voices lead us in song as we worship the Lord. Um, let's go, Lord, in prayer before we, before we dive in. Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for gathering us together. We thank you for the many folks that serve in a variety of ways in our church. Thank you for them. Uh, Lord, Lord, as we come now, as we come to the time of preaching, Lord, as we explore this Biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone that's central to the book of Galatians, Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we continue to grow in it, to learn from it, Lord, that we wouldn't just grow in head knowledge and know more about this doctrine, but Lord, you would give us greater confidence in the gospel because of it. Lord, that we would rest solely upon it as the grounds of our salvation, and Lord, as we See what it is that makes us right with you, that we would then take this message to the world and share it with those who need to be made right with their Father. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for bringing us here together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 16. We ended in verse 16 last week, but we're going to go back there. Um, and uh, continue on to the end of the chapter. Uh, I'll read the passage, and then we will uh, dive in. It says here, verse 16, "...nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may justified, we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law." "...since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be! For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ... And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died needlessly. Justification by faith alone is the bedrock of the Christian faith. A Protestant reformer John Calvin said, "We are justified in no other way than by faith." Or which comes to the same thing that we are justified by faith alone. Martin Luther, who nailed the 95 theses to the doors of Wittenberg, Germany, at Castle Church that sparked the Protestant Reformation, he says this, "If the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole of Christianity is lost." Now those are big statements. Those are big statements that if this doctrine is lost, then we have nothing. And that is the central doctrine to this book of Galatians as he is, as, as Paul is battling against these false teachers, the Judaizers that we've talked about week in and week out, who essentially say, yeah, you've got to have faith, but you also have to be justified by the law as well through circumcision and other things within the law. And Paul is saying, no, we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And I've crafted my sermon a little bit differently than I typically do. Typically when I preach, I, my, my points are more applicatory um, because I, I want us to come away with the, uh, how we ought to respond to this text. But I've crafted it with five questions. And we're going to answer those questions through this text this morning. And so the first question we have which is ultimately, hint, which is what this doctrine is about. Is number one: How can a righteous God accept an unrighteous sinner? How can a righteous God accept an unrighteous sinner? Now, in our text today, Paul is continuing his conversation with Peter, where he had this very strong uh, confrontation and rebuke, public rebuke of Peter, as we saw last week. He is continuing this conversation now. When we look at this text, it's unclear if he's still talking directly to Peter or if he's turned and addressing uh, the the Gentiles, the Galatians. At some point, he seems to switch audiences, but what Paul is doing here is he's following the logic of the Judaizers and getting Peter to see just how bad his actions have been and is exactly what he's communicating by his withdrawal, as we saw last week. Now, both Paul and Peter affirm the doctrine of justification by faith. They do. Now what is justification by faith? Justification is a legal term whereby a person is declared to be righteous or innocent. It's a legal term whereby a person is declared to be righteous or innocent. So in the court of law, if somebody were to have done something wrong in the eyes of the law, their actions could be justified or declared to be right, given a certain parameters, right? So you have a home invader, you take them out, they're, you, they're, you, you ended up killing them. Well, that could be an action that was justified. It was declared to be right because it was self defense. So in the court of law, justification is a legal term by which you are declared to be right. Or innocent from an action. The question here before us, though, is how a sinner can be declared right or declared righteous by a holy God? That's the question that the doctrine of justification seeks to answer. Making it more personal how can a righteous God accept an unrighteous individual like me? Now, when we look at verse sixteen, this passage, this verse that we preached last week, Paul is emphatically clear that we are justified by faith, and that no works, that through the works of the law, no flesh, is justified. Now he's actually quoting, and maybe not direct quotation, but he's drawing attention to Psalm one forty three. In Psalm one forty three, David is being trampled upon by his enemies. And he's asking God for mercy. He's asking God to be spared from his enemies. And even though he knows that all he deserves is divine judgment from God, this is what he prays Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, no one living is righteous. For in your sight, no one living is righteous. Now this is the verse that the, the folks that listened to Paul this first time, saying that no by the works of the law, no flesh is justified. This is the verse they would have, they would have been thinking about. David cries out for mercy. And he, and he cries out for the withholding of God's judgment. He sees these enemies coming against him as, as an act of God's judgment against him. But he cries out for, for mercy. And notice the basis on which he asks for that to be done. He says, answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one is living, no one living is righteous. He's asking for God's mercy, not on the basis of his righteousness, because he's saying there's nobody. There's nobody that has been righteous. Nobody deserves this mercy. But God be merciful to me because you are righteous. And this is the psalm that Paul would have been referencing. Paul is showing that God's ultimate answer to David's prayer came through Jesus. No one can be made righteous by law-keeping, but Jesus Christ makes us right with God through His perfect obedience that is credited to us. This justification, this legal declaration of God happens this way. When we place our faith in Christ, God treats us as if we were as righteous as Jesus. He credits us with his righteousness. God accepts us and declares us to be right with him on the account of Christ, in whom we have placed our faith. So, how can a righteous God accept an unrighteous sinner like me? It is solely by faith in Jesus alone, it is solely by being credited. The righteousness of Christ being applied to my account and my sin being placed on him at the cross. That is the only way that a sinner can be made right with God. Number two leads us to a very important question. If God has justified us freely by grace through faith, then why should we live a holy life? If God has justified us freely by grace, then why should we live a holy life? Now, this is a valid concern from the Judaizers. For the Judaizers, the doctrine of justification by faith alone seems like a license to sin. If I've been declared righteous by God, then it doesn't matter how I live. That's the way they're thinking. Now, Paul would disagree, and he's already spoken On this in his letter to Romans. In Romans 6.1, Paul asks hypothetically, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul says, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, Paul obviously does not affirm that the doctrine of justification by faith alone means we can live however we want. But it certainly seems that way to the Judaizers. In his confrontation with Peter, he even seems to follow their line of reasoning to make that point. In verse 17, look at what it says here. It says, But if, this if, hypothetically, while seeking to be justified in Christ, justified by faith in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? Now, Paul answers that with may it never be. But first, let's explore what he's asking here. Paul and Peter both affirm justification by faith alone in Christ alone and not by the law. In fact, both of them, being Jewish, have cast off the law and have lived like Gentiles ever since. Paul himself has lived like a Gentile ever since uh, he had that Damascus Road experience. So, you know, it's not the law. I, I, was, I kept the law, but, but, but Paul says multiple times that is rubbish for the sake of compared to knowing Christ. And Paul has, has, has eaten meats that were, that, that were previously unclean, that God had made clean. He had fellowshiped with Gentiles. Those kinds of things were not a barrier to him. He lived like a Gentile. Peter also, when he had this vision in Acts 10 with Cornelius that all foods were now clean and the Gentiles were now clean and can be a part of the covenant family by faith, Peter began to associate with Gentiles. Peter began to eat T-bones and sirloins and ribeyes with the Gentiles. Things that were previously forbidden under the law. He's now doing these things. Now, Paul obviously does not think that, it, that it's his sin to eat with Gentiles and eat to these meats that God, through Christ, has declared to be clean. But the Judaizers think it is. The Judaizers think that is sinful. And Peter, by his withdrawal from the Gentiles and table fellowship, his actions are communicating that he does as well. So he's saying, look, Peter, you and I have been living this way like a Gentile for years. We've been having table fellowship with Gentiles. we've been eating the things that they eat. Now by you, your withdrawal, you're aligning yourselves with these guys, the Judaizers, affirming what they're affirming, and yet you affirm that we're justified by faith and you're living in this way, has Jesus caused you to sin? Has Jesus caused you to sin? If he's declared you righteous by faith and now you're being found a sinner by eating with the Gentiles and eating what they eat, has has Christ led you to sin? Well, Paul answers that question, may it never be. Of course Christ has not led us to sin. And Paul doesn't think that Peter's sinning by eating with the Gentiles, the Judaizers do. But this was the Judaizers' objection, that the doctrine of justification by faith causes people to sin in the name of Christ. Paul and Peter had come to faith in Christ, but they were still living like so-called sinners, living like the Gentiles. And so the Judaizers thought, well, somebody needs to hold these people to a higher standard. Judaizers thought that's what they were doing. And Paul's response to the Judaizers would be, of course Jesus isn't the cause of sin. He's not a minister of sin. His grace cannot be blamed for my guilt. When God justifies sinners, he's not aiding and abetting their sin. Scripture says that God cannot sin. He cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone in James 1.13. The doctrine of justification by faith does not promote sin But actually, a view of justification by the law does. Look at what Paul says next in the next verse. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, what in the world is he saying there? Paul is speaking of rebuilding the law after tearing it down. This is what he's accusing Peter of. Peter at first destroyed the law by affirming the Gentiles as full-fledged members of God's covenant family. In a sense, he destroyed the law in a sense that it is not the law that saves. It is the gospel of grace through faith in Christ. But then he allowed himself to be pressured, separating himself from the Gentiles he once affirmed, thus rebuilding with one hand that which he destroyed in the other. First, he had told the Gentiles that they were justified by faith and not by works. Then, in this particular moment, he makes the works of the law, namely circumcision, the basis of Christian fellowship. The Judaizers were urging not just Peter, but the entire Galatian region to rebuild the law in place of the gospel. Now, if they did this, they would quickly become lawbreakers all over again. The law's purpose is to show just how sinful we really are. And when we try to earn God's favor by law-keeping, we can't. It's a standard that we cannot meet. Peter even says this in Acts 15. Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of on these disciples a yoke which neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? We've been, having been set free by grace, why would we want to return back to the law, which is an unattainable standard that we will continuously break and fall short of achieving? It's justification by the law that leads us to sin because it's the justification by the law that will continuously set us up for failure and to break that law. It is only through grace that we can be saved and the justification by faith alone does not lead us to sin but it's justification by the law that that does that the third question i want us to explore related to that is can we receive life by keeping the law can we receive life by keeping the law This is found in verse 19. Well, the short answer here is no. And that could be, we could be done with that point with just that one word answer, but we're going to expound the text here. Verse 19 says, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. If by the works of the law no flesh is justified, and the law serves as an unattainable standard that we will always break, this is why Paul says in Romans that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here in verse 19, what does it mean here to die to the law? John Calvin answers it this way, to die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion. So that we have no confidence in it, and it does not hold us captive under a yoke of slavery. Now I like that answer, but the question remains, how can someone die to the law through the law? It would make more sense if it says, through the gospel I died to the law, that I might live to God, but it doesn't say that. Instead, it was the law itself that persuaded Paul to abandon it, to be dead to it. Let me ask you, what is the penalty for disobedience to the law? It is death. The law had sent its Paul and Peter to death. All the law can do is condemn us because no one has ever, and no one can, and no one will, other than Jesus Christ, obey the law perfectly. Even if we could externally keep the law perfectly, we would still deserve eternal condemnation because we have a sin nature that cannot be in the presence of a holy God. This is why the law cannot save us. External obedience to the law cannot change our nature. Only the Spirit in applying the work of the gospel in our hearts can do that. But no one can keep the law perfectly. Our said nature does not allow it. Our Baptist faith and message gets at this. In the section on the Baptist faith and message that talks about the doctrine of man, it says this. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence. This is talking about the the sin of Adam and Eve. Whereby his posterity inherit a nature and environment inclined towards sin. Through Adam and Eve's disobedience, we now have a, a sin nature that inclines us to sin. Meaning our natural choice, the moment we wake up, is to sin. That's our nature. Now, if you're a parent, if you've parented children, you know this to be true. This is evident in the lives of our kids. Listen to what it says next in the Baptist Faith and Message. It says, therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Because we have a sin nature, you know what children do the moment they have a moral compass? The moment they're able to like rationally make decisions and Make choices on their own. You know what, what they do immediately? They sin. Anybody surprised by that? You shouldn't be. That's our nature. How many of you taught your kids to lie? Nobody. How many of your kids have ever told a lie? How many of you ever lied to your parents? All right? It's not something we teach that's our nature, I've never taken my daughter aside when she's done something wrong, I'm like, oh, you're going to really, mm, you're going to, this is not going to be good for you, let me give you a strategy of how to get out of the situation, you need to come up with a story that's not true, and tell that to your mom to, to get, it. I, I've never done that, never, and never would I, but you know what, it happens, We have such a sin nature that the moment that we're able to make a choice, we choose sin. That is our nature. We cannot find life through the law. The law only brings a death sentence because we have a nature inclined to sin, and that's what we choose immediately when we have a moral compass. But when we realize that the law condemns us to death and we cannot be made made right with God through the law, it is through the gospel that we find life. I accept the law's penalty. I accept that I cannot live by the law, that its penalty is death. It is through understanding that and embracing the reality that Christ paid the penalty of death. And through his death, through the gospel, not the law, I can live to God we cannot receive life the law but it is o- it only brings death but because Christ paid the wages of sin which is death we might find life in him number 4 if we are justified by faith what is the basis of our obedience I've already asked the question, if, if we're justified by, f- by, f- by faith, why live a holy life? To, is Christ leading us to sin? And I answer that in the negative, but, but we, need to, we need to ask if we're justified by faith and, 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 and that doctrine doesn't lead us to lawlessness and it doesn't lead us to, to, to all kinds of sin and licentiousness, what then is the basis of our obedience if it is not the law? Let's look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. What Paul is saying here is that he died to the law when Christ died on the cross. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we are united with him. The truth here that we have been crucified with Christ rests on the doctrine of our union with Christ. Everywhere in Scripture, we see that the Christian is in Christ. We are united to him. We are united with him. Let me highlight this in a couple of other places to see this. In Colossians 3, it says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, our life is hidden with Christ. We are united in Him. We are united with Him. And on the basis of that, this is what it tells us to do in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. It continues on with the list of sins, but it says, Because your life is hidden with Christ, because you have been united with him, put to death these things. Put to death these things because you have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Our life is sin with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. It is on the basis of our union with Him. We put to death our sinful nature and live in obedience. It then calls us to put on holy character there in Colossians 3. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you must also do In addition to these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And he continues on with a list of positive things that we ought to embrace. Well, why do we put to death these things, and why do we put on these things? Because our life has been hidden with Christ. Because we've been united to Him in His death and resurrection. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says this, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ? All of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We've been baptized into his death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What calls us to live a changed life is not a, the law telling us to do better and try harder, it is the fact that we've been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection our old self has been crucified our old self was put to death and as we are united with christ in his resurrection we walk a new life we walk a new life of obedience because of our union with jesus the reason we live a holy life is because we've been united to him we have died to sin In our union to his death. And we've been raised to walk in holiness and obedience through our union to his resurrection. It is our union to Christ by faith that leads us to live in obedience. Not a return to the requirements of the laws the Judaizers would try to get us to do. The law leads me to fearful obedience. Afraid to know if I've done enough. But the gospel's work in our life through our union with Christ leads us to joyful obedience as we seek to please God who saved us by grace. It is a joyous thing to live for Christ by faith. We're justified by faith and we also live by faith as it says in the text. This life that I live, it is Christ living in me this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It is my faith that brings me into union with Christ. And it is that faith that allows me to live in joyful obedience to Christ and His Word. It is when we are in Christ by faith that we become new people who will walk in holiness and obedience with joy. And finally, we'll look at this last verse and ask the question, How does the law nullify the grace of God? It says here in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, this is an interesting verse here. Now, whether Paul is still talking to Peter or the crowd... He's certainly referencing Peter's actions and his withdrawal from the Gentiles. Paul is, in effect, saying to Peter, Peter, by withdrawing from fellowship from your Gentile brothers, you take your stand with the Judaizers and against Christ. You are nullifying the grace of God by denying the need for Christ's death. Saying, look, if righteousness can be attained by the law, according to the Judaizers, then the proper conclusion here is that Christ died for nothing. If we can become righteous by the law, then why did Christ die? Say, he died. If we can attain righteousness by the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the proper conclusion of the Judaizers' position. It nullifies the grace of God in the death and resurrection of Christ. Legalism destroys the grace of God and undermines the death of Christ His atoning sacrifice for sin. If we insist that even a part of our salvation can be earned on our own merit through law keeping, we undermine the very foundation of Christianity. Then we are declared right by faith alone and Christ alone and we nullify the saving grace of God in the precious blood of Jesus that atoned for our sin. It's true that if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. But dear believer, hear me this morning. You cannot be made right with God through law-keeping. Christ did not die in vain. The law serves as a mirror that shows us our sin. When we look at the law, we must not think, man, I really need to do more and try harder and be better. We need to see the law, look intently at it as if looking at a mirror and say, man, I am sinful and I need Jesus. I need his grace. And Christ obeyed the law perfectly, church, where you couldn't. And Christ's blood was poured out to pay the wages of your sin. He, the wages of sin is death, and he died that death so that he could give you his righteousness. The only reason that we can stand before a holy God is that we've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus alone. A few final thoughts. Number one, repent of self-righteousness and embrace the gospel of grace as God's, God's means of becoming right with God. There's a wonderful sermon by a pastor named Alistair Begg where he says, if, if, and, he, and he paints it as a picture of the, th- the thief on the cross that was next to Jesus that Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He, he gets to, to heaven, and, and, and he says, uh, the story goes, there's an angel there, and, and, and he asks this guy, this thief that was on the cross, he's like, why are you here? Well, I don't know, I don't know why I'm here, but, I mean, I mean, how, how, how'd, you, how'd you get here? Well, I, I don't know, I, I don't know why I'm here, he said, so, well, let me get my supervisor angel, and uh, all right, well, we have got a few questions for you. Are you are you clear on, on the do- doctrine of justification by faith alone? Never heard of it. Well, let, let me. What, what about church membership? What, 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 don't know. Don't have a clue. This guy has no clue. Then, on what basis are you here? He asks. The man on the middle cross said, "I can come." The man on the middle cross said. I can come. That thief on the cross had no life of law keeping. He was a condemned thief. He deserved to be on that cross next to Jesus. But it was only by faith in Christ and through union with Christ and Christ saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. That is the ground of his salvation, is through Christ alone. Repent of any self righteousness. Any any believer that, can, that, that answers why are you going to be in heaven, anybody that says because I, because I did this, because I did that, because we have to repent of any self-righteousness because if we do that, we've started out on the wrong foot. The only reason you'll get to heaven is if you're clothed with Christ's robe of righteousness given to you when you trust in Jesus alone, by faith alone. Number two, guard against legalistic tendencies and remember that salvation is a gift it is not earned. It is so tempting to quickly revert back to legalism, to add on to Christianity. If, if you don't parent the way that I do, if you allow your kids to go to this school or that school, if you, if you go see this and you do that, and if you go here, legalism can creep into very quickly when we begin to add on other rules that we impose on other people. Now, we may need to employ biblical wisdom as to where to shop and what movies we ought to see or not see. But biblical wisdom is very different in legalistically enforcing on every believer that which we personally don't believe is wise. We must guard against legalism. Number three, find freedom in the gospel by embracing the, that Christ's sacrifice and living by faith. And living by faith is so freeing. We can live in obedience to his word without fear if we did enough or not do enough because we aren't obeying to earn his favor. We're obeying in response to his favor being lavished on us by grace through Jesus. Number four, submit your life to Christ today. Stop trying to earn your way to God and trust in Jesus alone that he accomplished everything for your salvation. Number five, Rest in the assurance of the gospel that Christ has secured everything necessary for your salvation through the cross and resurrection. How freeing is that? We can rest in Christ and stop trying because he has done everything needed to secure our salvation in Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, our